Please stand for the reading of Scripture. The sermon today is on Psalm 126. And so hear now the word of God. When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dreamed. Then our mouth was filled with laughter and our tongue with shouts of joy. Then they said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us. We are glad. Restore our fortunes, O Lord, like streams in the Negev. Those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. He who goes out weeping, bearing the seed for sowing, shall come home with shouts of joy, bringing his sheaves with him. This is the word of God and all God's people said. Amen. You may be seated. For those of you who keep tabs on the weather and climate in America, you know that until the heavy snow and rains of last spring and summer, for over two decades, the American Southwest has experienced relentless and devastating drought conditions, what climatologists have come to call the mega drought. Beginning in 2000, as the drought continued to drone on year after year, centuries-old pinyon trees that covered the hills throughout northern New Mexico and southwestern Colorado grew increasingly susceptible to bark beetles and died by the thousands, the hundreds of thousands. Once green and fragrant landscapes turned dull and gray with dead trees. I visited that region in western Colorado a couple of times in the last decade and I saw the devastation that was wrought by this. And for long-time residents in these areas, the change was depressing and it was felt palpably, even affecting the mood. And then one summer, after about 10 years of drought, out of nowhere it rained. And it rained good, like we say here in East Texas. It rained good. Within days, days, fields of wildflowers sprang up. The region's, nati- the, the region's natives could not believe their eyes at what they were seeing. Patches of ground that were once scorched and scarred with cracks were now miraculously overnight covered with yellow cowpen daisies, purple asters, and other flowers not seen in a century. But the rain alone was not the reason for the explosion of color. It wasn't just the water. The needles of those dead pinions that had fallen provided the necessary mulch and nutrients needed by long, dormant, latent seedbeds. And though the trees themselves would never be restored, their death gave birth to a new beauty as far as the eye could see. Those who go out weeping shall come home with shouts of joy. Psalm 126 seems at first out of place for us on this third Sunday of Advent. This is the Joy Sunday, the Rose Sunday as it's sometimes called, for Mary, the Rose of Winter. And granted, the psalm speaks of joy, of course, even shouts of joy, but with the images of seeds and sowing and sheaves of harvest, it seems perhaps better suited for Thanksgiving than for Advent. The psalm is part of the collection of the Songs of Ascents, though by many, uh, excuse me, thought by many to be used by pilgrims going up to Jerusalem for a festival. 
It has more in common, seemingly, with come, you thankful people come, or than come, O long-expected Jesus. But I think a closer reading of this psalm reveals its Advent message and why those who put together these lectionary readings chose this psalm for the third Sunday of Advent. Like the Advent hymn, Watcher, Tell Us of the Night, this psalm looks for signs of God's promise in dark and difficult times. It first finds them in the remembrance of things past, in the joy and the laughter that the people knew when God brought them home from exile, and even their neighbors acknowledged that God's mighty deeds on their behalf. Their remembrances can resonate with us, I think, in Advent at some levels, <clears throat> when we often look back at Christmas's past to perhaps recall long ago joys and perhaps better times. Like the psalmist, we can remember when, when our mouths were filled with laughter, when our family was all together, when our church was full, when our nation was, uh, was uh, at peace, and when the world seemed, if not joyous, at least a safer place to live than it is now. But Psalm 126 is not an exercise in nostalgia. Nostalgia, as I said last week, always threatens to take center stage during the Advent season in our culture and sometimes in our churches. Last week's sermon uh, uh, showed that this shallow kind of looking back is so very different than the kind of looking back that John the Baptist represents for us. John looked back to the Exodus, to the rescue, the personal rescue of Almighty God, and to the prophetic tradition that recast that great rescue event in terms of a new covenant where God would come and exercise His righteous judgment and save the true Israel from not only their uh, slavery to Egypt, of course, but from their sin itself. The faithful remnant bringing back, bring, brought back to God. That's the kind of looking back we're talking about. For the psalmist here, the remembrance of things past has a present purpose. The remembrance of things past has a present purpose. Recalling God's deliverance long ago leads directly to the call for God to use that same transforming power now, again. Verse 4 even asks God to demonstrate greater power than He did before. Not only do what you've done before, but do it now even greater. That's what we expect of God. Restore our fortunes, O Lord, like streams in the Negev. The psalmist is not content with Isaiah's vision of streams in the desert. That's a little too vague for him. He wants streams, really better, rivers or torrents is what the word means. He wants torrents of water in the Negev, a desert whose very name means dry or parched, the hottest place around, the, the desert of deserts. I want rivers in the Negev. That's what the psalmist is asking God for. Do we pray like that? We need to. We need to learn to pray like that. Isaiah predicted that uh, in, in Isaiah 35, sorrow and sighing shall flee away. But Psalm 126 proclaims that such sadness will be transformed into shouts of joy. 
Not only is it just going to go away, it's going to be transformed into shouts of joy. The grammar and vocabulary of this psalm indicates the intensity of this contrast and transformation. Like the images of rivers or watercourses or raging rivers in, in the Negev, not just springs or streams, the psalmist also uses a term for joy that incorporates abundance and, and the sense of power. There are a number of Hebrew terms that can get translated as joy in English. The joy of Psalm 126 is not just masos, which is rejoicing, or it's not just simcha, which is gladness or, or mirth, but rina, rina, a loud cry, a proclamation of joy, a shout of victory. That's the term used in this psalm. For joy. And moreover, this rina echoes three times, verses 2, 5, and 6. Three times throughout this really short psalm, we get this term. A grammatical technique in Hebrew that underscores a kind of ultimate joy. It's reiterated three times. Ultimate. Final. As those of us who've labored in grading student papers know, word choice matters. It means something. Rina, ultimate joy. That's what they're talking about. That's what he's talking about, the psalmist. In her autobiography, Ellen Glasgow, an American novelist, talks about her father, who was a Presbyterian elder, full of rectitude and rigid with duty. She says he was entirely unselfish, and in his long life he never committed a pleasure. Do you know of any Presbyterian elders like that? You don't have to answer that right now. Peter Jay, in a political column in the Baltimore Sun years ago, described the sober intensity and personal austerities of one Maryland politician. And then he threw in this line as a description. He said, he dresses like a Presbyterian. (laughs) Now, there must be so-called Christians out there who never crack a smile and who can't abide a good, wholesome joke. And I do have a suspicion that Presbyterians do contribute to their numbers, but I don't actually know very many of them. I don't know many of those kinds of people, even Presbyterians. Eugene Peterson says that this stereotype as such is really just a big, fat lie created presumably by the devil. One of the delightful discoveries along the way of Christian discipleship, as many of you know, is how much enjoyment there really is in this life with God. How much laughter you hear and how much sheer fun you find. In Phyllis McGinley's delightful little book, Saint Watching, where she gives anecdotes about uh, the different saints of Christendom, um, breathing some fresh air into some stodgy history, She tells this story about Martin Luther, uh, and Martin Luther's stories are always good, right? Martin Luther's close friend was Philip Melanchthon, author of the Augsburg Confession. Melanchthon was a cool man, where Luther was fervid, a scholar as opposed to a doer. And he continued, Melanchthon that is, continued to live like a monk even after he had joined the German Reformation with Luther. And one day Luther lost his patience with Melanchthon's virtuous reserve. And here's what he said. For heaven's sake, 
Melanchthon. Why don't you go out and sin a little bit? God deserves to have something to forgive you for. And our psalmist declares, we laughed, we sang, we couldn't believe our good fortune. This is the authentic Christian refrain, a sign of those who are on the way to salvation. Peterson reminds us that joy is the characteristic of Christian pilgrimage. It is the second in Paul's list of the fruit of the Spirit. It is the first of Jesus' sign, signs in the Gospel of John, turning water into wine. It was said of one famous Jewish rabbi, his smiles were fraught with greater meaning than his sermons. We could say this also about the Bible itself. Its smiles often carry more meaning than its sermons. The joys of knowing God in Jesus Christ. But we must guard against legalism on this matter. We must be careful here. Joy is a consequence. It is not a mere moral requirement. Many of us experience things that are full of sadness and pain. We walk the narrow road of faith with broken hearts. Some of us descend to low points in our lives when joy seems to abandon us completely. We must not, in such circumstances, say to ourselves, well, that's the final proof that I'm not a good Christian. Christians are supposed to have their mouths filled with laughter and tongues with shouts of joy, and I don't have that right now. I'm not joyful. Therefore, I must not be a Christian. There's danger in that way of thinking. Joy is not a requirement for Christian discipleship. It is a consequence of it. It is not what we have to acquire in order to experience life in Christ. Rather, it is what comes to us as the result of walking in the way of faith and obedience. We come to God to experience joy in our sorrow since none of us has this capacity within ourselves except momentarily. Joy is the fruit of abundance. It is the overflow of vitality. It is life working together harmoniously. It is part of the, the holistic and, and wholesome experience of the Hebrew concept of shalom. It is exuberance. Inadequate sinners as we all are, none of us can manage that for very long on our own. Only God can supply this. And in promising this kind of joy, our psalm offers an important insight, insight into the nature of this kind of joy. This is no jingle bells joy bought with a swipe of a credit card or a trip to the virtual Amazon river of consumerism. The seeds of this joy have been planted in sadness and watered with tears. This is the honest joy that often comes only only after weeping has tarried for the night many nights and <clears throat> such an understanding and experience of joy is vital in our life of faith particularly in this season of Advent, for all the celebrations, these weeks leading to Christmas can be a time of stress and sorrow for many. Sometimes we experience Advent's tears as personal sadness, remembering a loved one who's died 
or a relationship that has soured or ended. It can also be a sorrow we share as a nation or as a church when our preparations for the Prince of Peace make us realize how far we have really strayed from that path. And such sorrow can function to separate us from God, particularly if we confuse Advent's true joy with our culture's teaching about happiness and prosperity. In contrast, Psalm 126 acknowledges the reality of sorrow, yes, even for the faithful. But it also remembers and it points to God's power to transform sorrow into joy. The joy that this psalm both remembers and anticipates is a particular kind of joy, namely the joy of harvest. Not some vague joy. This is the joy of harvest. This particular point could reinforce the argument that our psalm is better suited for bringing in the sheaves than for preparing for the birth of the Messiah. Better for Thanksgiving than for Advent. Were it not for the fact that for the Hebrews, harvest joy celebrated something far more than just good crops. When the people of Israel brought their first fruits into the temple, they not only thanked God for the abundance of that particular year, they also gave thanks for God's deliverance in the past. This is a crucial point to consider for us as we appropriate the meaning of this psalm to Advent and to our daily living this week. In a ritual commanded in Deuteronomy 26, Israel remembered God's faithfulness and transforming power that went all the way back to Abraham. Remember Abraham, that wandering and childless Aramean of whom God had made into a great nation? Their harvest prayer also recalled how God's power had transformed them from Pharaoh's slaves to sowers of their own seed, a free people in their own promised land flowing with fertile soil of milk and honey. In last week's sermon, I made a big deal about how largely the Exodus theme plays into the New Testament's articulation of the gospel. And so we see here that the psalmist himself echoes the Exodus in his own version of what it means for God to show up and to save his people from sorrow and sin. The natural power of God to turn seeds into grain is miraculous enough. But Psalm 126 makes an even greater statement. These seeds are not ordinary seeds, but seeds of sorrow. God has the power to turn sorrow into shouts of joy. The fruit they bear is not grain or wheat, but shouts of joy. And so this is not just the conventional wisdom of uh, what Paul affirmed in Galatians, you reap what you sow. Instead, the image here, sowing in sorrow and reaping in joy, echoes an ancient Near Eastern belief that weeping or kneeling while you planted the seed made the crops even more productive. And so by linking this understanding to the celebration of God's deliverance, the psalmist changes this agricultural practice into a powerful theological statement. It affirms both God's power to act on behalf of his people and the people's faith in their God. They shall come home with shouts of joy. This is certain. 
I want to tie things together here as we close with a little anecdote. Uh, Donald Gray Barnhouse, some of you may know if you read some of the old Princeton guys. Uh, he was the former pastor of the historic 10th Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia, a storied church, a storied legacy. And uh, Reverend Barnhouse tells a story of his revered professor at Princeton, uh, Robert Wilson, who was a renowned scholar of astounding linguistic ability. In fact, while at Princeton, it was said that he was able to read uh, this scholar was able to read the New Testament fluently in nine different languages. About 12 years after Reverend Barnhouse had graduated from the seminary, he was invited back to speak in a chapel service at Princeton. This is an early part of the 20th century, uh, early to mid. And his former professor, Dr. Wilson, was present for the chapel service that day. And afterward, Dr. Wilson approached Barnhouse with these words, If you come back again, I will not come to hear you preach. I only come once. I am glad that you are a big godder. That's what he called him, a big godder. He says, when my boys come back, I come to see if they are big godders or little godders. And then I know what their ministry will be. When Barnhouse asked for an explanation, Dr. Wilson replied, well, some men have a little god and they are always in trouble with him. He can't do any miracles. He can't take care of the inspiration and transmission of the scripture to us. He doesn't intervene on behalf of his people. They have a little God, and I call them little godders. Then there are those who have a great God. He speaks, and it is done. He commands, and it stands fast. He knows how to show himself strong on behalf of them that fear him. You have a great God, and he will bless your ministry. Dear Christian, you serve a great big God who makes all things new in Jesus Christ, our Lord, just as he said he would. This is the root of our resurrection hope today. And so, though we may sow in tears, we too can sing in our hearts with the psalmist. Those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. He who goes out weeping, bearing the seed for sowing, shall come home with shouts of joy bringing his sheaves with him. God has said it. He will certainly do it. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Devoted Jews today still sing Psalm 126 at their Passover Seder ritual, which is the theological backdrop of this Christian Eucharist. The Jews sing this psalm because they remember that their joy is born out of the crucible of suffering and sorrow. Like a stalagmite in a cave, it is shaped by the slow dripping of human tears over time. But while tears are a shaping power of the life of the faith community, the Christian community, it's not its major attribute. Rather, the ultimate response to God's work is... Joy. G.K. Chesterton has called joy the gigantic secret of the Christian. The psalmist's reflection on the past was all about the joy that the return from exile brought these people. Our mouths were filled with laughter, our tongues with songs or shouts of joy. It was simply unheard of in that world for political exiles to be reinstated as a nation. That did not happen. 
Isaiah had predicted it, of course. But when it did happen, it still seemed like a dream to them. Unheard of. Only God could have done that. George Bernanos was bold enough to say that the mission of the church, in his view, was to rediscover the source of our lost joy. Joy is one of the earmarks of the Christian life, and Christ modeled this life for us. For it was joy, remember, that drew him to the cross. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, Hebrews 12 tells us. And this should even put a different perspective on the cross for us. When we gather around this communion table, we are characteristically somber in mood, and so we should be, but with a somberness clad in joy. What if we gathered around the Lord's table and burst into a gale of laughter? Would that be disrespectful or sacrilegious? Well, maybe, but not necessarily. As long as it's the laughter of heaven. Laughter that symbolizes the joy that Jesus knew in doing his Father's will. The joy that our sins are forgiven and that nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. The joy that he is coming again. At the Lord's table, the tears of sorrow ought to flow because of what our sin has cost our Lord. But at the same time, joy ought to bubble up in our souls because of what Christ has accomplished for us. It is a reckoning with this reality that provokes the laughter of heaven. If we could hear the music of the spheres, it would not be a sinister laughter. It would not be a get-even laughter. It's not a I-got-you-at-last laughter, but the laughter of love. The laughter that the exiles, the laughter the exiles had as they made their way back home. The laughter that comes from the knowledge of sins forgiven of a world made right with God, of a universe that declares the glory of this God, of light that shines in the darkness and that darkness cannot overcome. Jesus taught his disciples in Luke 6, Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Let us remember this promise as we feast with joy at the table now. Holy God, your prophets have long spoken of the one who would come to save us. Now that promise is fulfilled. Now your kingdom has come near. The word has been made flesh and tabernacles among us. And we have beheld his glory, the glory of the one and only mediator between God and man. He is full of grace and truth, and we are privileged to live in the salvation he brings. Jesus Messiah is our banner, our leader and companion on the highway of holiness heading to Zion. May we go forth from this place as agents and messengers of your way and witnesses of your truth to tell all the world of the wonders we have seen and the good news we have heard through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Amen. And my God shall supply all your need according to his riches and glory by Christ Jesus. Now to our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen.